Welcome to Timepiece, a podcast that will explore the extraordinary history of the unique turret clock housed in the Grange Gorman Clock Tower building. In the past 250 years, Grange Gorman has been the site of a workhouse, a hospital and a prison. Now it is to be integrated into the city as a health and education campus. The buildings of Grange Gorman stand as architectural monuments to that past and its complex histories. The Clock Tower building is an imposing Georgian building situated in Grange Gorman, just one kilometre north of Dublin city centre. Its facade is probably one of the most recognisable of the buildings associated with the historical Grange Gorman site. This is possibly because of its situation right on the Grange Gorman Lower Road, outside the walls of the former St. Brendan's Hospital. Information on the history of the building is readily accessible. Originally the Richmond Penitentiary, the building was designed by architect Francis Johnson. Johnson also designed the General Post Office on O'Connell Street in Dublin, the Richmond Lunatic Asylum, which is also in Grange Gorman, and Chapel Royal in Dublin Castle. On completion in 1816, the Clock Tower building initially served as a fever hospital and only received its first prisoners in 1820. However, in the years that followed, serious accusations of prosilitism and cruelty led to the closure of the prison in 1831. From 1832 to 1834, the building was once again returned to hospital use during the devastating cholera epidemic that impacted much of Europe at that time. In 1836, the penitentiary reopened as the Grange Gorman Female Penitentiary, the first exclusively female prison in Great Britain and Ireland. Between 1840 and the early 1880s, the penitentiary served as the Grange Gorman Transportation Depot, when an estimated 3,200 women and girls from all over Ireland were held there before transportation to Hobart, Tasmania. In 1897, the building was annexed to the adjoining Richmond District Lunatic Asylum. For more than a century, it acted as an administrative centre for the asylum. Later, the Grange Gorman Mental Hospital, and finally, St. Brendan's Hospital. The building forms part of a 73-acre site, once a walled psychiatric facility, and it will form part of the radical transformation of this site, as the new campus for Technological University Dublin. This transformation represents one of the largest urban design redevelopments undertaken within the Dublin city core for many decades. The Clock Tower building is a 17-bay, three-storey building. It is estimated that the original facade was up to 700 metres in length. However, as the function of the building changed throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the building was altered. For example, the introduction of more windows at ground level and the demolition of much of the structure beyond the facade. Directly over the central bay of the building, there is a square profile clock tower with chamfered corners, a green copper OG domed roof with carved granite cornice surmounted by a weather vane. What draws our attention for this special edition podcast lies inside the clock tower itself, a James Waugh flat bed clock. To tell us more about the history of this unique turret clock, we are joined by expert horologists, David Bowles and Julian Cosby. David Bowles has been described as one of Ireland's most prolific horologists. He has kindly agreed to share some of his expert knowledge with us on the intricate history of James Law and the Grange Gorman turret clock. During our conversation, David very thoughtfully emphasised the need for the preservation and care of the Grange Gorman turret clock as it is one of the finest examples of early Irish technological innovation.
So thank you so much for joining us to discuss the history of the Grange Gorman Turret Clock um, and being so generous with your time. If you could begin by sharing with me an overview of the history of turret clocks in Ireland. Well, the first clocks ever in any city in the world or town was a public clock. It was always perhaps the only clock in the city would be the public clock. In Dublin, it might have been in the 1400s. It was the most, the Christchurch Cathedral was then at the top of a hill. Its clock dials were visible from all angles, from every part of the city, and would have been a very prominent clock in Dublin. So that's the way turret clocks started, um, way back, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. None of those survive in Ireland, long, long gone. But in the 1700s, huge numbers of large public buildings were built with public clock dials visible to the public with a mechanism behind the dial, and they're called turret clocks. So basically every large, important civic building, courthouse, um, major churches, cathedrals, etc., all will tend to have a clock dial for the public and a mechanism behind, which is called a turret clock. So, David, with that, the public view of the clock, is that important? Is it about a kind of a de- democratic sharing of time? Generally, the public did not have clocks way back. In the 1600s, almost nobody would have a clock or a watch. 1700s, only the rich. 1800s, a small number, an increasing number, would have a clock or of any sort in their house. Uh, so the public clock was very important. It always struck a bell, struck the hours, so the whole town would know the time. Uh, they didn't need to have a clock because you could hear the church bell or the courthouse bell ringing through through the day and the night. Therefore, it was very important just for basic timekeeping. With industrialization, it became even more important to know when to go to work. So it was a public service, very much a public service. So how does this landscape fit with Grange Gorman and its clock? Well, as I say, virtually every major building would have a visible public clock dial up near the top, usually in the apex triangle of the building. Uh, that would apply to every, virtually every hospital, every courthouse, every particularly Protestant churches, not so much Catholic churches, but many Catholic churches, uh, courthouses, as I say. Even in a stately home, it would be in an outhouse. So they were just all over the place, just to help people to know the time to go to start work, to go for their meals. Way back in the 1400s, 1500s, the most important function was in a monastery for monks to know when to pray, when to eat. It was very much the clock sort of regulated the whole events of a, of a town or village. Um, I'm just wondering, the clockmaker, what? and Grange Gorman, how does he fit within the history of clock-making in Ireland? James, well, James Waugh and his father, Alexander Waugh, were both very important makers. They were probably the finest makers in their day, or in Ireland. Uh, of a world standard, they were very good. Uh, there were over generations or hundreds of years, there were many fine clock-makers in Ireland, but James Waugh would be one of the finest. So is there a link between the architect and the clockmaker at Grange Gorman then? How did Waugh receive the project or take control of the, the development um, of the clock? There very much was a connection, very definitely. James Waugh came from Armagh, which was a very important city in Ireland. Francis Johnston, who was perhaps the most important architect in Ireland, certainly one of the most important architects, happened to come from Armagh as well. Um, James Waugh's father... Alexander was very prominent in Armagh. 
there has to be a close connection between the two. Uh, they both moved to Dublin. Uh, James moved to Dublin about 1804. Uh, and Francis Johnson was involved in major buildings in Dublin. And there has to be a, a close connection. Francis Johnson was uh, very interested in campanology. Campanology is the ringing of bells, such as in a church tower or whatever. It was his particular hobby. Um, and James Waugh made uh, a very elaborate clock for Francis Johnson, which is now in Strokestown House uh, in Ireland. And uh, it uh, strikes on a large number of bells. So there obviously was a very close association between the two. Uh, that clock was in Eccles Street uh, at one stage. It is reputed to be the speaker's clock from the Irish Houses of Parliament, but I totally disagree with that. It was made later, about, I think, 1815. So, Waugh and Johnson had this connection. In the development of the Grange-Gorman clock, what made it unique or special compared to other turret clocks of the time? Well, generally speaking, most people know long-case clocks. They tend to be, grandfather clocks, that is, they tend to be similar. But when you open to a church tower or a, a, wherever there is a turret clock, turret clocks vary enormously in appearance uh, because they weren't normally seen by ordinary people. Um, they were made to be functional. And um, previous turret clocks for many hundreds of years, all previous ones, tended to have all the wheels and arbors. Arbors are the axes that the wheels run on. All of these wheels tended to be between two plates, two flat plates, and to repair the clock, you had to take the two plates apart, all the wheels would fall out, and you had the major problem of trying to get them all back in exactly the right positions when you assembled the thing. Now, James Waugh, along with many other clockmakers, had always coped with this problem, but he made two very unusual clocks. One is in Paris Corton House in Dublin. The other is in a church in Swords, and these were particularly tricky to put back together having been dismantled. And I think he was so frustrated with trying to repair those two clocks, he decided there has to be a better way. And he worked out this marvellous system where instead of having two plates with all the clocks between them, all the clock wheels between them, you have what's called a flat bed. This is a horizontal cast iron frame and the wheels are placed in line along the top of this bed. That means they're held in place by what are called plumber's blocks, particular housings that hold the ends of the arbours. And it means you can remove any wheel on its own without dismantling the, the entire clock. Previously, to work on any wheel, you had to dismantle the entire clock. This was a wonderful system. Like many great inventions, it seems so obvious when you see it, but nobody else had realised that this was the way to do it. So he produced from then on flatbed clocks with the wheels laid in a line, in, in a straight line. It made it much easier to make the clock. It made it much easier to repair the clock. In every way, it was a better design. The most famous clock in the world is Big Ben in London. But it wasn't made, it was made on the same system. But that was 26 years after James Waugh made the clock in Grange Gorman which is, so far as we know, the only surviving, the earliest surviving clock made in that system. Uh, and it is astonishingly well made.
So do you believe that Waugh developed this himself, that this was a unique discovery in Ireland of this type of mechanism? James Waugh may have evolved this system himself, or it's possible it had evolved in France somewhat earlier, and James Waugh possibly worked in France and saw some system there of a similar nature and got the idea there. Tragically, we just don't know. But there was a previous very important clockmaker called John Crosswaith in Dublin. And James Waugh, I have no doubt, was friendly with John Crosswaith. And I think they swapped ideas and maybe he contributed as well, though he never made a flatbed clock, so far as we know. So the clockmakers of Dublin then and Ireland itself, where do they sit within international standards as you've discussed France there? Clockmakers in Ireland, and I include watchmakers, they're clocks, made clocks and pocket watches, were very carefully controlled by the Goldsmiths Company, the Dublin Goldsmiths Company. They had the power to enter a premises, examine anything they wished, and if it didn't meet proper requirement, proper standards, they would literally smash it on the spot with a sledgehammer. So nothing was ever made poorly in Ireland in the way of an Irish clock. In fact, a poor Irish clock is so rare, if I saw one, I would buy one. They were never made poor examples. Whereas in, for example, Britain, wonderful clocks were made in London, but poor clocks were made as well in Britain. That doesn't apply to Ireland. The Irish clocks are always very good, very high standard, in some ways better than the average English clock. Do you believe that high standard is reflected in the fact that the clocks still exist, such as Grange Gorman, that it's still in standing and working today? A major problem with the turret clock is that the dials and hands are placed at a very high altitude, exposed to extremely strong winds. If ever you try to hold a piece of a board up in a strong wind, you'll realise how difficult it is. Imagine how difficult it would be to hold a board five feet long at the top of a church tower where the wind is four times as strong as the ground level in the furious gale, perhaps with snow, perhaps with birds sitting on the hand and so on. The clocks have to stand up to an extraordinarily difficult environment. Uh, they're in a church tower or wherever where there's gritty dust uh, been blown by hurricane winds through the mechanism so the fact that they survive at all is quite remarkable. Um, so it's uh, an extremely difficult environment um, and they have to be made extraordinarily well to work properly. For me, as a layperson encountering turret clocks, I'm often struck by the surrounding architecture that, of the actual clock itself. So you as a horologist, David, what do you see when you encounter a clock for the first time, such as, for example, as we're discussing the turret clock in Grange Gorman, what is it that catches your attention? If I see any clock, meaning a grandfather clock, a mantle clock, the very first thing I ever do, or anybody who knows about clocks does, is look at the dial for the maker's name and the town or city, which will almost invariably be on the dial of the clock. And that'll immediately tell you where it was made, who made it, probably what date it was made. It tells you a mine of information. The same applies to turret clocks. You look at a turret clock and you hope there will be a name and a town on it. If there is, uh, it'll immediately tell you who probably made it. If it's an English name, it'll probably be accurate. If it's an Irish name and an Irish town, he might have made it 
or he might have merely bought the clock in from England and put his own name on it. Now, in the case of Waugh, there is absolutely no doubt he made the clock. And with the great majority of Irish clocks, of turret clocks with Irish names on them, they were completely made in Ireland, completely made usually in Dublin, but perhaps Belfast or Cork. Um, they were completely made in Ireland, such as um, James Mangan made a wonderful clock in Cork, an extraordinary clock uh, in Shandon uh, Church, completely made from the cast metal, the wheels, every part made in Ireland. But I'd say some clocks have Irish names on them, but are just purely English clocks. Now, they are still important and interesting, but people in England, uh, the public in England, are very good at preserving turret clocks. So huge numbers of English turret clocks have survived. Tragically, large numbers of Irish turret clocks were superbly made, but are rarely appreciated and tragically have often been merely scrapped for scrap metal or sold abroad. So the existing clock then at Grange Gorman is quite special in that way. It's an example, an existing example that's, I believe, quite well preserved now after the repairs that we did in the 80s on the clock itself. What do you find is the most fascinating feature of this existing clock, aside from, say, the flatbed that you discussed? Is there something else that's quite unique about the Terra clock at Grange Gorman? Well, the flatbed design is highly important. But apart from that, it is incredibly well made. Uh, for many turret clocks, because people don't see them, it might not have the sort of finish you might expect on a clock that's going to be visible. But this clock was so beautifully made that it could be put on exhibition anywhere. Um, from beginning to end, the quality is astonishing. Its size, it's very large. Um, it must have been a very major undertaking. It must have been any turret clock made for a church it was a major event to make a turret to, to decide to install a turret clock in any building was a very major expense a major decision and that clock must have been highly expensive I may be record somewhere as to how much it cost I do have the cost of winding it basically if a clockmaker installed a turret clock he was also made responsible for keeping it in good order uh, this would perhaps involve winding the clock either himself or his apprentice every week, or giving that to a trustworthy person. Generally, the clockmaker himself would organise the winding and would be paid a sum of money every year for winding the clock. For example, uh, James Waugh in 1836 was paid for winding and regulating the clock of the Richmond General Pen Penitentiary one year and a half to 4th of April 1836, 11 shillings. So that would be part of the contract. It would tend to be renewed every year or whatever. And it would include keeping the clock regulated to correct time um, and keeping the clock in good order. So what was responsible for the caretaking of the clock? And... I know in the 80s and the, the 90s there was discussions about changing a lot of the um, turret clocks to electric or mechanical. You'll correct me now, David, with the correct term. No, no, you're fine. As the problems of getting people to climb up to one of these turret clocks, it is no small job climbing up to them. Frequently involves climbing a rickety vertical ladder through narrow passages uh, in very dirty surroundings and for a person to have to do this every week 
religiously uh, to keep the clock wound became a problem. The clock in Blessington Church is one of the oldest in Ireland and I gather a lady meticulously kept it wound for maybe 50 years for a very long time but eventually these dedicated people passed away nobody took over the job the clock was stopped and then one of two decisions were made one was to preserve the original mechanism and add a system of electrically winding which would keep the clock wound automatically uh, there might be the small problem of putting the arrow forward or the arrow backward twice a year and keeping the clock to time, but by and large, it removed the problem of winding. Now, these clocks, such as the one in Grange Gorman, often had extremely heavy weights, so to wind one up was no small undertaking. It might take 20 minutes of hard work. So I said that was one solution to install electrical winding. Another solution was to discard the clock altogether and replace it with a complete electrical clock. When they did that, one or two things happened. The original mechanical movement was left to one side in the church tower to get old and dusty and rusty, but at least was preserved. The other alternative was to remove it for scrap, and sometimes the clockmaker would make an allowance for the scrap value of the clock he took away and literally scrap it or sometimes they might get sold um, to a collector. Um, thank you for giving me the time there today no, no, for um, sharing your incomparable knowledge on such a fascinating artefact of Irish history. I really appreciate your time. My next guest for this special edition podcast is Julian Cosby. Julian Cosby is an expert horologist whose name is synonymous with clock restoration, repair and preservation. Julian kindly agreed to share with us his intimate knowledge of the Grange Gorman turret clock as he restored and repaired the clock in 1985. Julian began our conversation with an explanation of how he became aware of the Grange Gorman turret clock. Well, I studied antiquarian neurology and went back to Ireland. I come from Ireland, it's my homeland, and I went back to Ireland in 1980 to do domestic clocks. But when I went around Dublin, I noticed that a lot of the clocks were not working, the turret clocks, the, the big clocks. And uh, one that I saw more often than not was the Rathmines Town Hall clock. And I was gilding the dials and corners of barracks when... The head of the engineering department in Grange Gorman, a man called Paddy Brennan, the chief engineer there, said, we've got a clock up in Grange Gorman and we're about to throw it out, but I would like your opinion of it. So um, when I went to see it, the whole of the staff came up the ladder with me. And when we went into the clock room, it wasn't as it is now. Um, it was all dilapidated and there was about a foot of pigeon manure everywhere. And here was this huge flatbed clock and I remember one of the girls there saying, Jesus, that'll never work again. And I said, you'd be surprised, um, and kept my fingers crossed. I was relatively, I'd only come back to Ireland then. I came back to Ireland in 1980, and I was working in Marley Park at the time. And um, I had restored the clock in Royal Hospital Caminum 
and made the hands for that clock in 1984. That was the first clock I did. Then I, I got the job of doing the one in Grange Gorman, the war clock. Now, you have to ask why Grange Gorman clock is famous. In Ireland, there were about 10 Irish turret clock makers. In the Victorian period, before the Great War, the First World War, turret clock making was a very competitive business, and some beautiful clocks were made. And in Ireland, of course, just like Georgian silver, the, the Irish turret clocks at that, at that time were very much on par with the people in, in England making clocks. And there are, out of those 10, the last, the last one to, to ever make clocks in Ireland was Ganter Brothers in, in George Street. But that was much later, much as 1908-1910 period. I'm talking about the end of the 18th century. Throughout our extended conversation, Julian explained why he is interested in saving the turret clocks of Ireland and why we should value the unique Grange Gorman timepiece. Here, Julian provides a vivid description of the turret clock's flatbed mechanism. Uh, a lot of these turret clocks, which have been removed from the towers, have disappeared. Um, I don't know where they could be in America, they could be in, in, but they've lost their provenance and they won't know who made them. And it's rather a shame. Now, you have to go back to why, I think one of your questions was, why am I interested in trying to save these clocks? And that is, you don't look at, you don't look at these clocks just as clock timepieces, these turret clocks. They were being developed. They were pro trying to improve time over the years. In the situation of Grange Gorman, that flatbed clock is the oldest known flatbed clock in the world today. It's not saying it is the oldest, but it's the oldest known flatbed clock. They thought that for a while, they thought Big Ben was the oldest flatbed clock, but it's 18, much later. And in uh, the book describing Big Ben, they talk of all sorts of things that they invented, like plumber um, plumber bearings has been the first clock to have plumber bearings. You probably don't know what plumber bearings are, but they are uh, open cap bearings. In other words, the axle the shaft goes into the bearing, but you can lift the top off to oil it and clean it and put the top back on again without dismantling the clock. War was using it in your clock in 1818, and Big Ben wasn't done until um, 1854. So that's one one reason. Another reason is the cast iron. Cast iron was a very had been going since the Roman before the Roman time um, in BC, but it was never uh, utilized greatly, and it wasn't until they in the eighteenth um, century was that Derby introduced coke firing, and um, that strengthened the, the the production of cast iron. Cast iron is used everywhere today, but it's it's a very good metal in the compressed condition. But it's very brittle. If it's it'll snap, um, and it's very brittle. Crossweight was using cast iron. As you have different styles of clocks, that's another thing. People look at these things and just think they're a clock. Clocks started off being wrought iron, and they went from being bird cage a bird cage clock. Um, is just four corners. It's like a box, four, four corners, and you have struts in the middle and the clock train goes upwards. That was replaced when cast iron came in by what's called the four-poster clocks, which 
the cast iron frame was made out, the pillars were made out of cast iron. When you come into turret clocks and big turret clocks, they've always fought a fodder system where the first wheel, the great wheel and the barrel is at the bottom and then the next wheel goes upwards. So it, it goes up, it's built up in the vertical plane. Uh, so if you can imagine a, a clock in a rectangular frame, open frame, skeletonized frame, rectangular with struts going up and all the parts retained by struts going upwards. When you remove those struts, you're left with a lot of heavy parts which would fall down. Somebody said, why go upwards? Why not go uh, along a bed, a flat bed, where you um, don't have the, the, the worry of holding on to the components. You can separate them individually, more or less. And that's, what, that's when the flat bed was, was formed. But it didn't come popular until quite late, uh, well, uh, really after Big Ben. But War, in uh, his clock, he has a huge flatbed clock. And why it's so big and heavy is because he didn't know the strength of, he was trying to make sure that the clock was sufficiently strong to take the weights. And if you look at the cast iron on that clock, it is beautifully made. It, the castings are beautiful on it. And the other thing is all the detail work, things like the nuts and bolts, the washers are part of the nuts. And if you look at the, the workmanship on that clock, it, it's just beautiful. It's been recognized as a very fine clock by, by the antiquarian neurologists. A fascinating aspect of our conversation was when Julian explained how these enormous mechanical instruments were maintained throughout the last two centuries. Most of these clocks were maintained uh, by the weekly winder and were very, one's very grateful to them for uh, taking an interest. But they knew nothing about clockwork. And if, something, if a problem existed, out came the oil can and they squirted oil everywhere. You never oiled the wheels of a clock. Uh, the reason for that is oil and dust are the perfect abrasion paste. If you owned a grandfather clock, as we, many people do, and some are very proud that they haven't been serviced for 40 years or more. And you find that, that when you take them, that they have severely worn due to bad maintenance, not through, uh, because oil and dust is a very severe abrasive paste. And it doesn't uh, destroy the brass wheels because it gets embedded in the soft brass wheels, but it laps the steel pinions, which are very hard, and wears them out. And if you look at Grange Gorman clock, you'll see that the pinions there are quite badly worn, especially, especially high up in the train. But a worn pinion doesn't mean you have to replace it. A worn pinion, uh, the pitch circle remains the same, irrespective of whether it's worn or not. Too often people replace the pinion because they're worn. The disadvantage of a very worn pinion is you get a groove where the wheel has been operating over the years due to wear from dirt and dust. And you get a, a shoulder. And so when you restore a clock, you are restrict, you're removing very slightly the take, – take a, a grandfather clock or a long case clock. If it's up against somebody's wall, that wall may not be perpendicular and the clock may be slightly tipped backwards towards the wall, and it works in that condition. When they decide to move the clock or sell it or move it somewhere else, it won't work. It stops because the, the wall that it's up against, instead of being slightly tipped backwards, might be vertical or slightly tipped forwards, which means that all the wheels start moving slightly towards that 
plane. And of course, if you've got a very worn pinion, that wheel gets caught in the wear, in the corner of the wear. And that is the only time where you would have to look at it again. And um, in fact, it was, that was the problem in, in um, one of the problems I had to overcome in Grange Gorman. You have to then try and move or bush slightly proud to try and get it to run back where it was originally in that groove. Otherwise, it won't work. So um, what I was faced with there was and these weekly winders um, sadly died. And then the clock never um, nobody went up to wind them. And in the case of Grange Gorman and many towers, the windows up there are broken and pigeons get in and nobody goes up there and the place ends up with a, maybe a foot deep of pigeon manure and has to be cleared out. The same happened in St. Catherine's Church in Thomas Street, the second oldest clock in Dublin. And you want to see the rusty state that one was in. But fortunately, Paddy Brennan realized the importance of this clock and had it saved. They cleaned it all out, the clock room, and I took the clock down, took it to pieces, and brought it to my workshop in Marley Park, except for the frame. The frame is not, but there were, um, again, the beauty fact is that you had these plumber bearings on it, um, and they were much easier to deal with. So what happens is the bearings wear. You get the old bearings in a clock, or bushes, as they're called in clockwork, become oval due to the pressure applied. And that increases the depthing between the wheels and the pinions. And therefore, you've got to put it back to what it was original. And so you rebush it, or you, it's called, in the turret clock, it's called resleeving. So I resleeve that clock and uh, put it back. The other thing is the pallets. The pallets are the thing that rock on top of this gateway, which you hear in the clock going tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. They were very badly worn. I've left them up there, the original ones up there. And uh, they're quite big, the pallets. But making pallets, it's a very hard material. So it's a tool steel, very hard tool steel. And it has to be hardened after you work on it. And once you've hardened them, you can't work on them. They're very hard and slightly brittle. There was a German firm in, outside Dublin somewhere who I managed to get some tool steel off them. And they said, oh, we can make those for you. And I said, you can and you can't make them because the – Beauty of a of a, a, a good working escapement is called the the drop. That's the amount the escapement passes each time it escapes and it hits the hits the pallet to get a new impulse. It's the amount of movement. If you have a very worn pallet, the escape wheel moves around quite fast and puts a lot of pressure when it hits the pallet and bends. Eventually, it bends the teeth of the escape wheel. But and the war clock, I. When I put it back, I restored it and um, made the, the the pallets. When the firm said, we can make them for you, yes, they can, but you can't because you've got to try and reduce the drop. And it's that clock has got what is called a deadbeat escapement. Again, on all these clocks, the, the original escapement was an anchor escapement. And it, it meant that once the pendulum had been invented, Huygens tried to improve it. He had what's called a crown wheel escapement, um, a verge escapement. And eventually, and then the, I think about 1676, the anchor escapement was invented. The anchor escapement, you have most grandfather clocks have an, 
an, an, um, an anchor escapement. And if you look at the second's hand, if it's got one on a grandfather clock, you will notice when the second's hand moves forward, it always moves backwards slightly, and then it goes forwards and backwards. That's the recoil. And it, it, it is necessary on a recoil escapement. But Graham, uh, around 1715, tried to um, change that, and he introduced what's called the deadbeat escapement. If you look at a grandfather clock, which has a deadbeat escapement, the second hand would go very positively around in, in a circle. There's no recoil at all. So you don't have, if it's recoiling, it means that all the clock wheels are moving backwards slightly. Having gone forwards, they're then sliding backwards a little bit. And, of course, you get unnecessarily worm and power taken off. So the deadbeat escapement was a great improvement the, on clocks, and it is still um, used on most clocks. As the clock fell into disrepair in the mid-1980s, I had the opportunity to ask Julian for his first-hand experience of restoring and repairing the wall flatbed clock. Julian explains here what the process encompassed when he took on the responsibility in 1985. You must never remove the parts of a clock. Anything you do, ethics comes into it, and even restoring clocks. You have to scratch your head. Um, That's probably why I'm going bald. Um, You had to scratch your head on many occasions to try and solve a problem without removing the parts. If you replace the parts, it's no longer original. So you must keep things original as possible. Yes, there are times when you have to, but very rare. When I'm restoring clocks too, if I have to repeat the the frame of the clock, you often find hidden somewhere the original color. And they all had their original colors. Um, And the the war clock in in, um, Grange Gorman, uh, I mixed that paint, I mixed up to match the old color. And they all had this sort of engineering color. You take Bruce clocks and they can be bright red, um, but an engineering red. The very early birdcage clocks quite often were a pale blue. um, And they take enormous pride when you bring them back. And that happened in in the um, war clock in Grange Gorman. When I bought it back, they couldn't believe it. They said, are those parts new? And I said, no, they're not. They're all original. And they were so pleased that they did up the, they put all that framework back on the top um, cage. And that's another important thing. Turret clocks should be, you wouldn't go up a tower and take the back off your watch. Um, You'd, you, if you, you'd look at me with seven heads if I told you to take the back off your watch. And I'd say, well, why won't you do it? And you'd say, well, you get dust in it. Well, it's exactly the same with turret clocks. Although they're 100 times or bigger uh, or more, they suffer terribly from fine dust. And so they should be in a, a boxed housing. And in your case, you are in a box housing. Um, it's a beautiful. They've, they've done a lovely job in, in Grange Gorman. I only wish they would clean the belfry out up on top because you'd be amazed how much dust comes up from the street and goes through the louvers and lands up there. I'm always trying to clean it out. And that's one reason why they're serviced once a year because if you weren't, didn't dust your mantelpiece for a year, you'd soon be able to write your name in it. That applies to turret clocks. And what happens is not the dust on the frame or the dust on the arbors. That doesn't make an offer. What happens is that the dust falls down onto the pivots through the the shoulders. 
and it mixes with the oil and the capillary action then starts taking place and the dust will draw the oil out of your bearings or it'll bring the dust in and which you don't want. In the closing moments of our conversation, Julian reminds us all of the historic value that the Grange Gorman turret clock holds. And that's what's happening in Ireland. Um, they don't they don't realise the importance of these clocks. You've got to keep them. They are our inheritance. They are the forerunners to the Industrial Revolution. Engineering, gear cutting, wheel making, all came from horology. The the timekeeping, the well, we had the accuracy we have today is thanks to horologists. And these artifacts are now outcome by electrical clocks. I have nothing against electric clocks. If you're putting up a new building, you put up the most modern technology. But you've got to retain these old mechanical clocks and preferably in their towers. But they belong to you and me and to the public. And they have an enormous historic value, not as a clock, but as the progress of the improvement of timekeeping and that's what's important about them. That's why the, that's why we take such interest in them as horologists, not to, to, because they are just clocks, but because of the historical value and uh, of them and the reasons why such and such was installed or fitted or designed on them, which you don't understand. You don't see. You only see the dial outside. So it's extremely important that the authorities in Ireland uh, realize this and. It doesn't matter if a clock is slightly fast, um, oh, five minutes fast, because if you look at it from a distance, you have to know parallax up at any height. So if you're looking at it from the left, it tells a different time from looking at the right. But if you're putting up a new mill building, of course you'd put up the most latest technology. But it's not right to be replacing some of these historic clocks uh, unnecessarily, especially with cheap automatic winders. clock faces to four elevations. The clock face has remained in situ for two centuries, marking and communicating across generations the passage of time. The purpose of the building may have changed throughout its lifespan, yet the clock's hands continue to move, marking and keeping time. Technological University Dublin is honoured to safeguard this iconic piece of Dublin history and to protect it for many generations to come. This podcast has been produced by Grange Gorman Histories to celebrate Culture Night 2021. Grange Gorman Histories is a public history project of Dublin City Council, Grange Gorman Development Agency, the HSE, local communities, the National Archives, Royal Irish Academy and TU Dublin. <laughs>